Thank you for joining us for this week's message from Highland Park Baptist Church. The preaching and teaching ministry of Highland Park is led by our pastor, Dr. Jeremy Wallace. Our desire is to help you grow in your faith so that you can better glorify God, make disciples, and love others. To learn more, visit us at hpbc.church. Now, here's this week's message. So have your Bibles, open them with me to Revelation chapter 3. The passage that we looked at a little bit earlier is the passage we're going to dive into now. We are coming to the tail end of our series that you see on the screen, Seven Letters, and we are going to be wrapping this up. Um, and then in February, we'll begin a new series on the book of Jonah called God in Pursuit. And I believe it's really going to be a helpful, impactful four-week series. It'll be, it'll be shorter than this one, but again, packed with lots of truth. But this morning... We want to focus our attention on the letter to the church at Philadelphia. Let me give you a little backdrop of kind of what this city was going through, because it's important to understand if we're going to really be able to grasp why Jesus is saying what he is saying. The church of Philadelphia was in the same general vicinity as these other churches that we've been talking about. But the thing that is different about this church is they had some natural disasters or one main natural disaster that they had to deal with that was affecting them. This was a small church. And the question is, why was it such a small church? And the reason was they battled um, earthquakes. They would have severe earthquakes that would come and rattle the city to the point to where the physical infrastructure of the city would be almost completely destroyed. And then for several months following those massive earthquakes, there would then be aftershocks that would continue to rattle. You can imagine the buildings weren't built like they are today. And so it didn't take a whole lot to completely destroy them and knock them down. And they would be starting from scratch. And so as these earthquakes happened, there were people who basically got fed up with it and say, you know what? It's not worth living here. If I'm going to put all this time, effort, energy into building this building or house or business and the earthquake's going to happen. And then the aftershocks, they would start rebuilding and the aftershocks would come and it would begin to, again, tear down the buildings. Many people were moving out of the area. People were moving out of the city of Philadelphia and they were moving to Pergamum and um, some of these other Sardis, some of these other churches that we've talked about. So there was this physical impact on the city, but there was also a psychological impact. Nobody wanted to live there. I mean, if somebody was looking for a new place to move, Philadelphia is not where they would want to go, mainly because they weren't sure if they were going to be able to survive. They weren't sure if they're going to be able to make a living. And so those who did decide to stay in the area, many of them would live on the outskirts of town. They would construct tents and these little booths that if it got knocked down by a, a earth, earthquake, it wouldn't be the end of the world. They can kind of rebuild that and go on. And so the church at Philadelphia was ministering inside the city. And so as a result of all of these earthquakes, people were leaving. The church was dwindling. The church was getting smaller. And it wasn't because anything they were doing was wrong. It was just the result of natural disasters. But on top of that, they also had persecution that they were dealing with. And the persecution that we've talked about the last several weeks was a reality for the church of Philadelphia as well. And so when you have this church in this city, people are leaving the city. There's the infrastructure is crumbling around them. They have the psychological effect that nobody wants to live there. No new people are coming. This is the reality for the church at Philadelphia. This is where they were ministering. This was their world. And so as a result of everything that was happening, this church was small. And we're going to see why that is important in just a few moments. But if you have your bulletin, you'll notice on the back there is an outline. And I encourage you to kind of fill this in. Now that we kind of understand the backdrop, can you imagine having a church in that kind of environment where everybody's moving out, nobody's moving in, 
Every time you build something, an earthquake comes. And these were severe earthquakes. These earthquakes would come and destroy everything, and you have to start from scratch again. And kind of building on that, they had a negative religious culture. See, Rome kept paying for their rebuilding. But as a result of Rome paying for the rebuilding of these cities, they demanded allegiance. And so they would send people in, and so they had these altars being built, and they would change the name of the city from time to time to honor Caesar. This was the reality of their world. But in the midst of this, what's interesting is that this letter is positive. No specific sins are pointed out. No specific sins are highlighted. Christ doesn't look to them and says, change this or else. We've seen that in some of the other letters. We don't see that in this letter. In fact, what we see as we begin looking at these verses is that Christ commends the church. And I want us to begin by noticing the reasons Christ commends the church. Why does Christ commend the church? And as we go through this, what you're going to see this morning is this theme, the importance of simply holding on. Holding on. Last week the theme was wake up. This morning the theme is, I guess we could say stay awake. Um, literally hold on and we'll see that as we go through this. So why did Christ commend this church? Here's number one. Here's the first thing. They had strength and obedience despite small numbers. If you look at verse 8, in the middle of the verse, you see this. I know that you have but little power. I know that you have but little power. Now, we may be tempted to look at that and say, well, Christ is criticizing them. He's looking at them and saying, you have little power, but that's not what he's doing. All he is simply doing is acknowledging that they have small numbers, and as a result of their small numbers, their small size, they have a limited amount of resources. But Christ praises them. He says, you have small numbers, you have limited amount of resources, but you still have obedience. Here's here's a crucial truth. Y'all listening? What we have or do not have is not the determining factor of whether or not we are obedient to God. This church had dwindling numbers. They lived in a difficult area. They had small amount of resources. But Christ looks to them and says, in the middle of everything, you have been obedient. They did not use what was happening around them as an excuse for disobedience. They did not look around them and say, well, you know, our numbers are dwindling, so we can't be faithful. Our numbers are dwindling, so we can't be obedient. We've lost all of these resources, so we can't do everything that we once did. They did not use any of that whatsoever as an excuse for their disobedience. See, from a human perspective, they should not have been able to have an impact. I mean, in in this struggling city, they should not have been able to have an impact. But their obedience was not based on the reality of their circumstances, but on their spiritual character and on their spiritual focus. See, some people around us today are so focused on all that they do not have that they're not obedient. And other people are focused on all that they do have that they're not obedient. And in both cases, the focus is on stuff, not on Christ. When you look at this church, what they had or did not have was irrelevant to whether or not they were obedient. In fact, if they had lost everything... They would still have been characterized as obedient because that was not what drove their obedience. See, the challenge that you and I have is that we we have a tendency sometimes to decide whether or not we are going to be obedient based on how things are going. Right? I mean, we let our circumstances drive our obedience. I mean, we look around and if things are going good, then we are obedient and we are faithful. And if the bottom falls out of life, sometimes we're not as obedient. We're not as faithful. We let the circumstance dictate our level of obedience. And according to Christ, according to this letter he writes to this church, that should not be the case. 
I mean, our obedience should be the same whether we're on the mountaintop or whether we're in the valley. It should not alter one bit. When Christ, when we have everything in our life just as we want it, we should be obedient. And when the bottom falls out and everything is the exact opposite of how we want it, we should be obedient. Why? Because circumstances should not dictate whether or not you and I are obedient to Christ. Christ looks at this church and says, you have strength and obedience despite small numbers. Second thing that he commends them for, praises them for, is the fact that they had, that they were faithful, they had faithful endurance despite trying circumstances. That phrase in verse 8 that says, you have not denied my name, indicates that there was pressure to do so. There was this pressure for them to turn their back on their faith. There was pressure for them to deny the name of Christ that at its worst, and maybe, maybe not quite go that far, but there was pressure at least to loosen their beliefs and say, you know, we, we, we believe these things, but there's this pressure to kind of loosen how, how boldly we stand on those so that maybe we can re- reach and minister more people. And as Rome would come in and help with the rebuilding, they would add extra pressure. But Christ again looks at them and says, in the spite of this, in the spite of the pressure to turn your back on me, in the spite of the pressure to deny my name, you have been faithful. You have endured. The persecution was real. It wasn't just the earthquakes. It was the persecution. They heard the stories of Christians losing their lives. They heard the, the, the stories of Christians being thrown to wild animals. They heard the stories in these other cities of what was happening to believers. There was pressure to kind of back off their stance on truth. But Christ looks at them and says, you have not done that. In fact, it's implied that they held to their beliefs more securely. See, the circumstances over which they had no control drove them to the person of Christ, not away from the person of Christ. And this is an important truth. Listen, life is going to be hard and life is going to throw you a curveball. And sometimes the bottom is going to fall out. Sometimes things are going to happen that you, that you did not expect to happen. And there's two options. Those circumstances and those situations can drive you from the person of Christ or they can drive you to the person of Christ. And whether you're, what you are focused on is the determining factor. If you are solely focused on the circumstances, you will run from Christ and you will ignore Christ when times get hard. But if you have the spiritual character that says, I will focus on him regardless of what is happening, when the bottom falls out of life, you will be driven to the person of Christ. And we're going to see the importance of that as we continue through the message this morning. So Christ looked at their obedience. He looked at their faithfulness and responded then with several promises. It's almost like he looked at them and says, I understand the difficulties you're facing, but let me give you several promises that will encourage you. These promises are more doctrinal in nature, but they're crucial. And so I want to mention them. Here's the first one. He he wanted them to understand that their salvation was secure. Verse 8 again says, I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. This open door is a picture of salvation. It's a symbol of the the doorway to forgiveness, the doorway to eternal life, the doorway of salvation. And what Christ is saying is even though everything in your world is turned upside down and you're losing everything and you have dwindling numbers and dwindling amount of resources, nothing alters your eternal destiny. If you're a true member of the body of Christ, if you have truly given your life to Christ, then no matter what happens to you, the salvation that Christ has offered and the salvation that you have accepted is secure. You say, what does it matter? What does it matter? 
mean, why would they need this assurance? I mean, why would Christ write to them and says, listen, I want you to be assured that your salvation is secure. See, when life gets hard and does life get hard? I heard. Oh, yeah, it does. When life gets hard, there is a tendency to question whether or not God really loves us. I mean, when the bottom falls out, there is a tendency to wonder, you know what? Is God's love real? I mean, how can a God allow this to happen to one of his children? And I can imagine that there were people in this church in Philadelphia that as, as they were experiencing this constant cycle of loss and this constant cycle of destruction, that they began to wonder, God, we're trying to do what you've called us to do. We're trying to be faithful. We're trying to hold on. We're trying to stand on your word. But God, all this is happening. Do you really love us? I mean, even John the Baptist question. We mentioned that a couple of weeks ago. John the Baptist is in, is in prison. He'd been proclaiming the name of Christ and now he's thrown in prison and he writes, writes back to Jesus. And says, are you really the one? I mean, his circumstances caused him to question whether or not God was real, if Jesus is real, whether the love of God is real. And it is very common and likely that some of you have asked that very question. God, how can you let this happen? God, I am following you. I'm obedient to you. I'm faithful to you. How can you allow this to take place in their life? God is your love Real And Christ is writing to this church as they're asking this question and he is assuring them, listen, no matter what happens on this earth, the love of God is eternal. And no matter what happens in your life, nothing can steal your salvation. And no matter what happens to your health, you have an eternal home with God. No matter what happens in your life, you can be assured of eternity with God because of the person of Jesus Christ. And this is why it's so important that we focus on Christ and not on circumstances. Because when we're focused on circumstances, we begin to question the love of God. When we're focused on Christ, we embrace the love of God. And when we focus on Christ, we understand that no matter what happens in this world, there is an eternity that is real. And when we realize that, we live for that. See, what... What will allow us as a church to have a maximum impact on our world and on our community is when you and I determine to live with an eternal perspective. When you and I say we are not going to live for the here and now, we are living for eternity, we want to impact lives for eternity. Listen, that's what hoops is all about. I mean, the, 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 the temporary is the basketball. Are, are they learning basketball? Maybe, some, all right. Yes, they're learning basketball. But you want is more important than that is eternity. What drives us to invest hours upon hours upon hours in hoops is not just that we want to teach basketball. Because there's going to come a day when basketball no longer matters. But what we do with Christ eternally matters. That is our focus. That is our drive. You and I have to be focused on the eternal. So never, never question God's love. Never question whether salvation is real. Never question if, it's, if, if that door of salvation has been closed. Christ says, I have opened it and no one can close it. It is eternal. Never lose sight of that. There's a second promise that Christ gives them. And is that he will be victorious over those who rejected him. Verse 9 says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Not only do you need to know that God loves you, there's going to come a time when everyone knows that Christ loves you. 
There's going to come a time where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Christ will be victorious. And listen, we can watch the news and we can think that the evil is winning. I mean, if you watch the news, sometimes you get that impression. But never lose sight of the eternal. No matter what happens today or tomorrow or next week, Christ will be victorious. And the love that Christ has for you this morning will be known to all, even those who have rejected you and have rejected Christ. The love of Christ is real and all people will know it. And there's one final thing I just want to mention briefly in passing. It's found in verse 10. And it's the promise that he would keep believers from tribulation. He would keep believers from the tribulation. Verse 10, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Because of the reality of their faith had been proven through their faithful endurance and obedience to God, Christ looks at them and says, I will keep you from the hour of trial. And I believe that hour of trial is referring to the great tribulation. When Christ pours out his wrath over the whole earth on all those who are living on the earth, there is the promise that Christ will deliver his saints from that tribulation. They will be spared from that. Christ will keep believers from the outpouring, from that outpouring of wrath. Now, even though... Everything's positive about this letter. There's still some commands that Christ gives. Even though everything about this letter to this church of Philadelphia is positive, there's still a couple of commands that Christ gives this church. And it's really tied to this phrase in verse 11. Look at verse 11 with me. He says, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. That key phrase is hold fast. In one sense, that phrase means to remain loyal to Christ. Remain loyal to Christ. We have these, this command to the church. This first command to the church is remain loyal. Meaning don't let the pressure around you cause you to waver off of truth. Don't lose sight of the gospel. Remain loyal to truth. But then there's the second side of this, which is remain faithful in service. I mean, that's what this church at Philadelphia was doing. I mean, everything was falling down around them. Their lives were crumbling in. They were losing everything. Lives were lost during these earthquakes. And they would have to rebuild and start over mourning the loss of loved ones. But in the midst of that, they were faithful. And God looks at them and says, remain faithful. Keep doing what you're doing. Hold on. Don't fail to do what you know to do simply because the circumstances are challenging. Now, I want to spend the remainder of our time focused on two practical applications. These are important. I mean, I I believe if if you've missed everything else I've said this morning, don't miss this last part. These two applications, practical applications, takeaways, kind of summaries of this letter are things that you and I as believers, we have to know. We have to know. Here's the first one. The successful Christian life is characterized by a willingness to persevere in simple obedience to Jesus. Now, I know this is a a long point, but let, let me read it again. The successful Christian life is characterized by a willingness to persevere in simple obedience to Jesus. Here's what we like to do. We like to elevate the, the, the extraordinary. We like to elevate the magnificent. So we look and whenever we see an extraordinary act of service, we elevate that and we praise that. 
And when we see a huge sacrificial act, we elevate that and we praise that. And when we see this magnificent act of obedience and sacrifice and service, we elevate that. And what happens over time is we begin to think that the only thing that is pleasing to God are the magnificent acts of obedience and the huge acts of sacrifice and the, the, these, these real public acts of service. And we think, you know what, if I'm going to be pleasing to God, then I've got to do something huge. But according to this passage and many passages through scripture, God is not as interested in a one hit wonder as he is those who are daily faithful in those small tasks, those who are faithful in those daily steps of obedience. See, there is a danger. And I want to warn us about this. There is a danger that says, if I'm going to be pleasing to God, I have to do something huge. And when we begin to think that way, we begin to minimize the importance of the daily acts of obedience to God. Let me tell you something, it's crucial. Because one spectacular act of obedience will not hold your marriage together. But persevering in simple daily obedience will. One spectacular act of obedience will not help you overcome an addiction. But daily steps of obedience will. One spectacular act of obedience will not change your priorities and your actions and your reactions, but persevering in simple daily obedience will. See, we have to stop being so enamored with with the spectacular that we miss the supernatural. See, what is truly pleasing to God is the daily steps of obedience. You, You may be here this morning and say, well, I can't do anything huge. You know what? God is just as pleased with your life when you are daily persevering in those small steps of obedience. I mean, God may call you at some time to to this huge act of obedience or service or, or sacrifice, but he may not. But what matters today is, are you obedient to what God has called you to? I mean, there's some of you, some of us, who this morning we are looking at our lives and we're saying, I need God to intervene. I, I need God to intervene in this portion of my life. And I need, I need a miracle in my marriage. And I need a miracle in parenting. And I need God to intervene with, with this job situation. And, and I, I, there's this sickness that has hit. We're looking at all these things and we're saying, God, that my life is turned upside down. The bottom is falling out. Everything is going the exact opposite of how I planned. And we're sitting back and we're thinking, okay, I'm going to look for that one huge opportunity of, of obedience. But listen, that one spectacular act of obedience will not change Your life in the same way that daily steps of obedience will. What God uses to transform and what God uses to, to, to change your heart and change your life and change your habits and change your actions and change your reactions is when you persevere in daily, simple obedience to Jesus. But you know what? That's harder. Isn't it? I mean, it's a lot easier to, to do something, to kind of get ready and do something once real big and then make, whew, that's over with. I mean, isn't that what we do? See, what God is looking for from you and I this morning is for perseverance in those small daily things. Let me tell you, that is much more difficult. That is so hard. But that is what the successful Christian life is. So understand what the successful Christian life is and then pursue that. Make that your goal. 
I mean, look at that and say, if the successful Christian life is this daily perseverance and obedience, then my goal today is perseverance and obedience. My goal tomorrow is, is doing the small things. And I guarantee you that as we do those small things faithfully, God will use that to transform us and to transform our church. But let me give you this second truth. And this is equally as important. Sorry to break it to you, but God's people are not exempt from suffering and persecution. Some of you have already figured this out, haven't you? God's people are not exempt from suffering and persecution. Listen, we live in a very health, wealth, and prosperity culture, don't we? And unfortunately, that has begun creeping into the church to the point where many Christians live as though they believe in karma. I know that sounds crazy, but let me explain. So how are believers acting as though they believe in karma? Well, a lot of believers have this mentality that if I... If I do what we just talked about in that last point, if I'm faithful and obedient to God each and every day and I'm striving for obedience, you know what? God owes me. I mean, if I do all of these things and God's going to keep me healthy and God's going to keep me wealthy and God's going to, well, I don't know about wise. We, we have this mentality that if we do everything, then how can God allow tragedy in my life? And we don't always see this on the front end where I typically see it is on the back end. I, I, I see people sometimes, I've talked with people who when tragedy strikes and sickness strikes and the job is lost and everything is falling apart, they look and say, but I've been faithful. How can God allow this in my life when I've been faithful to him and obedient to him and I've been in church and I've been giving, I've been serving. How can God allow this in my life when I've done this? You know what they're saying? It's not fair. God owes me because of this. That's karma. And what we have to understand is that it is possible for you this morning to be completely faithful to God and completely obedient to God and still experience tragedy. It is possible for you to live the way God wants you to live and still suffer. It is possible to do what God has called you to do and still have sickness and death strike your family. It is possible to do all that you know that God wants you to do and still have the bottom fall out of life, your world turned upside down. And what we have to understand is that this truth, understanding this truth, is going to dictate how we respond. Because if you truly live as though you think God owes you because of your faithfulness, when, when tragedy strikes, your back will turn to God and you will walk away because God's not been fair to you. But if you understand going into it, I'm going to be faithful to God and I'm going to be obedient to God and I understand because of my faithfulness and in my obedience, it is still possible for tragedy to come and sickness to come and life to be turned upside down. When that comes, those events will drive you to the feet of Christ. Not away from him. I mean, do you, don't answer. Do we truly believe that it is possible to be obedient to Christ and experience tragedy? Some of you have. And I want to encourage you on the other side. I mean, that's the challenge, but the encouragement is just because you are experiencing tragedy and experiencing loss, that does not mean that God is punishing you. That does not mean that you have been unfaithful. It is possible to be faithful and still experience tragedy. Peter was crucified upside down. Thomas was filleted alive. 
John was thrown into a cauldron of boiling oil. Stephen was stoned to death. Paul was beheaded. Andrew was crucified. Matthew was stabbed to death. James was beat to death. Matthias was burned alive. Other church leaders were thrown to wild animals, burned at the stake, drugged through the streets behind chariots, speared to death. These are faithful believers, faithful followers of God that God used to change the world. And they suffered severely and they died painfully. Don't for a moment think that if you simply be if you're simply obedient to Christ and faithful to Christ, that he's going to spare us from pain and suffering. No, that's not the most uplifting and encouraging truth. But if we don't understand this, when it comes, we will crumble. So let me tell you how we should focus. See, again, it comes back to your perspective. When we're focused on all that is happening in our world, those events will either drive you to Christ or they will drive you from Christ. See, what you have to understand is that your salvation is secure and you can lose it all, but you have Christ. And he's worth it. I mean, you could come in this morning with everything and leave with nothing. But there is still reason to praise because you have Christ and you have forgiveness and you have salvation and you have eternal life. See, what allowed all of those people I just mentioned to you to be able to stand tall on their beliefs and faithful to God and obedience to God despite losing everything and things not turning out exactly the way they had hoped. What made that possible is the, is the knowledge that what happens on this earth is not the end, that there is an eternity that is real. And I can lose everything now, but I still have Christ. And I can lose it all. That's the reason Job was able to lose his family. And lose his health. And lose his possessions. And in Job 1, about three quarters of the way through the chapter, Job responds and says, even though I've lost everything, blessed be the name of the Lord. Why? Because he knows that, he knew that what happens in this earth is not all that there is. There is an eternity that is real. And when you and I live as though eternity is real, it changes how we view negative circumstances on this earth. I mean, you may hear me talk about all these people that died these tragic deaths and think, well, that was, that was thousands of years ago. Well, the New York Times recently profiled a 32-year-old man in Afghanistan named Joseph. He briefly escaped civil war in his home country by fleeing to Germany, where many of his siblings were living. And at that point, he had already rejected his Muslim faith. And out of curiosity during this time in life when he was at this kind of camp, place in Germany, he began spending time with Protestant chaplains and kind of started studying all different religions. He studied Christianity and Buddhism, and he continued to study Islam a little bit and Hinduism. But he said what really began, but even before he ever gave his life to Christ, what kind of drew his attention was the fact that that Christ came to save sinners and how he interacted with those who accused him. And to make a long story short, he ended up being deported back and Let me read you what his brother said. After being released from a refugee camp, he soon became a follower of Christ, was baptized, and was deported back to Afghanistan. He's currently hiding from family members who have vowed to kill him for renouncing Islam. A brother-in-law even offered the New York Times reporter $20,000 to tell him where Joseph was hiding. Here's what he said. 
If I find him, once we are done with him, I will kill his three-year-old son as well. So Joseph, his wife, and his child are all in hiding simply for turning their back on Islam and giving their life to Christ. See, if Joseph believed that if he gave his life to Christ and followed Christ, that everything would be perfect the rest of his life, then right now he's depressed and he's discouraged, but he's not. Even in hiding, he is praising God and worshiping God because he has an eternal perspective. He's praising God and worshiping God because he knows that even if he loses his life on this earth, it is not the end. I used to go caving a lot. Any of you ever been caving? All right, a few of you. In Georgia, there's this place where we would go, we would drive, and there's this place, and it's not marked, but there's this tree with a little rope and a hole in the ground about this big that opens up into six miles of underground cave. And so what we would do is we had a group of friends, and we would go out, and we would set up camp out by a lake, and when it got dark, we would go into the cave, and we would spend all our night in the cave because it's dark there anyway. I mean, you'd go down to this place, and it was pitch black. We'd... So you'd go down this rope, and the first room that you would enter was called the pancake room. It was about 14, 16 inches tall, and you had to kind of crawl through it to get out. But once you got to the other side, it just opened up. I only did that once, by the way, there. I, I couldn't handle that much more, much more than that. Y'all claustrophobic? I'll leave that out of the story next time. But there's this one place in this cave, and I remember this very clearly, that it was too steep to just walk down, and it was too slippery just to slide down. So one of the groups that had been through before had tied a rope around a, a big rock, and so you had this place where you could hold this rock and go down, and it, it, it was about 10 feet down, too far to jump. And so I was the last one down. Everybody else had gone on down before me, and they were... They had all turned off their lights because they wanted to see how dark it was. So I just had my light. And so I'm like, all right, I'll be down in a second. So I get positioned and get down. But as I'm getting positioned, my helmet that had my light gets knocked off and it falls and the light breaks. And now all of a sudden it is pitch black. I don't know whether I'm halfway down the rope, all the way down at the rope, still at the top of the rope. So what do you think I did? I froze right there. I'm like, guys, turn on your lights. And they're like, huh? Uh, and it, they were messing with me and they left them off for a while. I just stood, I just stayed on that rope, frozen. I didn't want to jump. I didn't know how high I was still. Well, I finally they turned their lights back on. It's like the cartoon. I was like that far from the ground. <laughs> and so I get down. But listen, there are going to be times in life that are dark. Where the lights go out, tragedy strikes, and you have to hold on. You have to cling to that rope, trusting that it's going to hold you. See, the good news for you and I here this morning is that thing, that rope that we're clinging to in this Christian life is the person of Christ. And let me tell you something. There's going to be times when you're going down into a dark place in life and all the light disappears and it is pitch black to where you can't see the hand in front of your face and you're wondering where everyone is and you even are tempted to question whether God loves you and the only hope you have is clinging to the person of Christ. Cling to him. That's the reason why I titled the message this morning, Hold On, because when I was thinking about me going down that, all I could think of, I was holding on. And there's going to be times in life where that's what you have to do. 
Christ assures you by saying, listen, your salvation is settled. Nothing that can happen in this world will ever alter that. Your, your, your eternal security is settled. Nothing in life that can happen will alter that. But don't believe for a second that simply because you're obedient that life's going to be perfect. So what do we do? We persevere in simple daily obedience. And we trust that Christ will change us and transform us through that obedience. So this church at Philadelphia, they didn't have a lot. Things were dwindling. The bottom had fallen out many times, but Christ looks at them and says, I praise you. I commend you. He says, hold on. Things may get worse before they get better, but hold on. And so that's what I want to challenge you to do this morning. Simply hold on. Some of you are in something right now to where you are clinging to the rope and you're saying, I'm wondering if there's hope. Hold on. Christ will sustain you. Some of you right now are in a period of your life where things are great. To God be the glory. But persevere in daily steps of obedience. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you have any questions or want to know more about having a closer relationship with Jesus Christ, please contact us online at hpbc.church. Please join us again next week as together we seek to know Christ and make Him known.